Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. And this is episode 243. We have a very special guest joining us today, Roger Pelkey Jr. He's the director of the Sports Governance Center within the Department of Athletics at the University of Colorado. He's got degrees in mathematics, public policy, and political science. He's heavily involved in research in science, sport, and politics. He's also the author of two of my favorite books, The Honest Broker, Making Sense of Science in Policy and Politics, and also The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. These are both two books I've recommended before, and uh, I coerced him to join us on the podcast today. So we'll get into that interview shortly. But before we do, we've got a few announcements. First up on our YouTube channel, we've got a whole new series called Tech Support. We're on our second episode, basically I take lists that you guys have submitted to me, and I review them for free on the YouTube channel. Uh, pretty interesting stuff, gotten some really good feedback, and if you wanna be on the channel, you can send me a lifting video at mediabarbellmedicine.com. I'll also link to the videos. Uh, you can watch them after this podcast uh, in the show notes below. Also got new apparel at the website, the Ma'am, This Is a Wendy's. Got a few of those shirts left, and also the streetwear tanks. So get those before they're gone. And then we do have some upcoming seminars. So we have our two-day health and performance seminar at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California at the end of this month. So you can hang out with myself, Dr. Baraki, Leah, Tom, and the untamed one himself, Alan Thrall. It's going to be a great seminar. A few spots left there. And then we'll be in the South Pacific in Australia. January of 2024, we'll be in both Sydney and Perth. So again, I've linked those in the show notes below. And then lastly, if you've got something you want us to talk about on the podcast, uh, send those to media at barbellmedicine.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. Pioneer Belts has their annual Christmas sale going on this weekend. It's October 6th through 8th. The entire site will be marked down at least 15%. Don't need a code. Just head over there if you need a new belt, if you need some new lifting accessories. Everything is marked down. If you're on the fence about picking out a new belt, not sure which belt to pick, or how to go about doing it. We've got a whole article on this called The Science of Lifting Belts. It's in the show notes. Also did a podcast on it, episode 219. That's in the show notes as well. Pioneer makes great products. Uh, just got their knee sleeves in. I'm really excited to try those out. Uh, I'll give you a full review on those once I test them. But they make great products and are trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head over to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. All right, let's get into this week's podcast with Roger Pelkey Jr. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, Roger. I became aware of you and your work when I was researching the case between Castor Semenya and the International Amateur Athletic Federation, the IAAF, which is now called World Athletics. Later, your work on doping in sports was very helpful at framing my understanding of how effective the current testing protocols are in sport, or basically not effective. We'll discuss both of these topics in today's podcast, but first, I'm so curious to know how you got interested in these two topics. I know you were previously involved in climate science research and policy. So how did you get here? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, all my work is really on the same, same topic, which is conflict where science meets decision-making, um, you know, science and policy and politics. And more than you know, a decade ago, almost 15 years ago now, 
um, I was just looking for new material for uh, my students, my grad students who I was teaching uh, what's called science and technology studies. And about that time, that's when Oscar Pistorius, uh, the Blade Runner, was, was running on his blades, wanted to be in the Olympics, uh, was trying to get to London. Um, and then soon after, Castor Semenya showed up in Berlin uh, at the World Championships and uh, started this gender controversy. And so for me, you know, the question of, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? And, you know, if you have uh, artificial limbs, uh, can you run with able-bodied athletes in the Olympics? And how would we know? Um, and so that was like a technology and science question I brought before my students. And then the question of how do you classify athletes at the elite level as men and women um, for purposes of competition was another question where science um, entered into this really fractured um, issue. And my students loved it. And um, I was into sports governance issues myself. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to teach something, you got to know something about it. And so eventually, um, sort of doing some research and publishing in these areas and have been doing so for about the last 15 years. I mean, I, I just figured that you thought the climate science stuff was boring. You're like, okay, this is juicier. Let's, let's get into it. <laughs> yeah. It's, the climate stuff has been interesting over the years. Um, and, and obviously another place where there's, you know, political battles and science gets used and abused. Um, so in that sense, these issues aren't all that different, even though they're vastly different topics. Would it be fair to say that like most of your interests kind of you know, you mentioned, you know, where science and kind of policymaking intersect, but more so that when the science is relatively unclear, not guiding like very perfect management, particularly when people have different value systems. If everybody is in agreement on like, hey, we should we should do this particular thing because that's fair or best or whatever, it almost seems like where there is a gray area, that's kind of where your interests sort of lie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I often use the example of, uh, of you know, if a, the tornado is coming towards a, a building and there's a whole bunch of people inside, um, it's not really difficult to convince them to go to the shelter, you know, go down to the basement because everyone has the sh same value. They want to live. They don't want to die, obviously. And we can say, oh, yeah, the science made the decision for us because we looked at the radar and the tornado was coming. But there are other cases, um, and you're exactly right, where values are in conflict and people have different views. Um, and science doesn't determine what the outcome is. Um, you know, we need science, we need data, we need information, but how we choose to use it um, in a political setting gets really complicated really fast. Yeah. And then obviously on the internet where everyone has a voice, uh, yeah, there can be huge, huge uh, arguments and, and whatnot, and people get polarized and, uh, you know, a current the current state of things with respect to the vaccine, that is the same sort of deal. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Yeah. COVID yeah. is another another issue where where science comes into conflict with people's values and um, people cherry pick the science they like, they ignore the science they don't. Um, and again, it's, it's a, it's really hard to make good decisions in the, in those contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hist we'll look back on a, a lot of these decisions and policies that were put in place for various different topics. And we'll say, ah, we made the right decision or this was right, acceptable right. at the time. And anyway. Um, okay. So let's start out talking about sports doping. And, and again, I know this was something you published on uh, quite a bit. Uh, and so just to give the listeners a lay of the land, we, we did a previous podcast on this and kind of gave people, okay, here's like the prevalence of how much PED use is, is in sport. But just to remind folks, PED use has been going on since they were developed, since the beginning of time, uh, so to speak, in, in sport. Um, current estimates suggest it's pretty wide, uh, widely used in sport as far as PEDs go. Two kind of famous surveys, uh, one suggests that at the 2011 World in, uh, Track and Field Championships, 29% of, of uh, athletes reported use within the past year uh, of PEDs. And then at the 2011 Pan-Arab Games, I think it was 45%. And even amongst non-competitive athletes, so just gym goers, there's some estimates suggest that close to three-quarters of men in the gym have used anabolic steroids in the past year, typically at higher than uh, what would be prescribed for like testosterone replacement therapy. So do you find those estimates to be accurate in line with sort of what you found or, or what you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it, what's, what's really interesting about the prevalence of, of doping in sport question is it, it doesn't have to be a mystery. It's, <laughs> it's the sort of thing that, um, you know, social scientists are really good at um, coming up with estimates of behaviors that people engage in that they might want to not divulge. So, um, you know, drug use, um, recreational drug use, or, um, you know, having an adultery, having an affair or something like that. Um, so, so social scientists can come up with good estimates. And what's, you know, what I've written on is, is 
our decision to try to basically remain ignorant on this topic. And so, you know, the studies that you just referred to um, were actually commissioned by uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, and uh, World Athletics, IAAF, in its previous incarnation. Um, and they they s- tried to sit on them and, and not put the, the information out. Um, it was because of the uh, UK Parliament, actually, uh, was the first organization to get that information and, and release it. Um, and the numbers are, are, are larger than people generally would have thought, because, um, if you look at, at uh, athletes sanctioned, um, under the Olympic movement for, for violating doping rules, it's like 1%. And then here we have these numbers that come up and they're like, you know, 25%, 45%, um, you know, one in two might be, you know, a, a first round number guess. So, um, you know, it does vary by sport and, you know, the professional sports and the professional leagues in the United States, you know, they're, they're self-governed and athletes, um, you know, have contracts. And so, you know, they, they get to decide how they're doped, um, under the Olympic movement, um, anti-doping is something that, it, that, you know, sports governors do to athletes. So, you know, there's a lot of complexities here too, but I, I guess the, you know, the bottom line for me is that there's a lot of doping going on and, you know, if you if you don't want to know that, don't look. And that's I think a stance that's that's pretty common out there in the sports world. Yeah, it it is difficult to get people to sort of admit, so to speak, to like uh un you know, unsavory behaviors, especially in a given society. And so yeah, when I think about these numbers and then just being involved in sport, so I'm I'm a powerlifter and this is the running joke is a, it, powerlifting is a sport for washed up athletes or like never had, never was athletes. Yeah. And, and so, and, and despite the incentives being relatively low from like a financial, like reward sort of standpoint, um, doping is super common in, yeah. in powerlifting, but we only catch, you know, maybe 1%, 2% yeah. you know, as far as positive Tesco. And I'm like, I would agree maybe one in two, you know, maybe even more are probably using. And so it, it's kind of like, why are we not able to obtain this information outside of just people, I guess, being unwilling to sort of admit it due to either legal sanctions or like some sort of social uh, issue? Is there a better way to go about ascertaining this information? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I go back to, you know, a step before that. Um, and, you know, think about what the what the purposes of, of anti-doping regulations are. Um, if you go to the WADA prohibited list, there's more than 300 substances and methods that are listed there. And then there's, you know, a lot of derivative um, and related, um, you know, substances that are there. So, so the list is too big to actually be governed. I mean, WADA would need an enormous budget. We'd need all sorts of testing. Um, and so it, when you start out, um, anti-doping doesn't even meet its own goals. Um, and so I've argued for a long time is, you know, what if we, what if we got the, the most important substances, you know, the steroids, the EPO, um, you know, whatever it happens to be, instead of 300, maybe it's 10 or 20 substances, um, and, and say, you know, we're going we're gonna to regulate um, rigorously for, for these substances, you know, that we, we, we can detect um, and have a big impact on fairness of competition, and then we're going to let everything else go. Um, and, and so, you know, that would be more practical um, and it would get rid of this illusion that, you know, somehow elite Olympic sport is somehow pure uh, and that we can put in rules in place where it's going to be pure. Um, I mean, the reality is, and I think everybody knows this, is that it's a, it's a, it's a battle between, um, you know, doctors and chemists and athletes, you know, versus regulators um, and testers. Um, and it's, you know, a cat and mouse game and always has been. And, um, the, you know, it seems that uh, the ability to, to evade the rules is always a step ahead of those trying to enforce the rules. So, so I think we got to have some degree of realism in, in what we're trying to do with anti-doping. Yeah. This reminds me of a, a story. I had a personal run in, uh, with kind of like a behind the scenes look at the anti-doping controls in powerlifting. And when I was tested, uh, this, this particular time, I think it was 2016 or 2017. And so, yeah, after the meet, they, you know, escort you to a room, you give the urine sample. And I saw the form. This is the first time I've ever seen the actual form that they were going to mail in with my sample. And there were three check boxes. One was for anabolics, one was for diuretics, and the other one was for stimulants. And it was up to the promoter, the meat promoter's discretion, which box or boxes oh, wow. to choose. And I assume there's some sort of like, you know, we have X amount of budget. We have to test, yeah, yeah. test X amount of our sample. And I'm like, yeah, 
uh, do you just do this based on some sort of suspicion? Like, oh, if they're big and, you know, maybe overly muscular, you, you test for anabolics. If they look jittery, you're testing for stimulants. Wow. <laughs> and, if, wow. yeah. and, it, and if they look lar- much larger than their weight class, maybe they use diuretics to get to that weight. Like, I, I don't know. It's like a, like a clinical suspicion sort of thing. Or, right, right. But yeah, it seems like you're, there's just too many agents to potentially test for in a meaningful manner but they have that extensive list because they want the public to sort of be under the illusion that all these people are clean and uh, you can do it too. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, a, a big part of anti-doping is the, is the impression of, um, you know, I, I don't like the, the language of clean and dirty, but the, you know, the impression of, of clean athletes that are in competition, you know, um, you know, look, we're, 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 putting these um, regulations in place. We're testing the athletes. We can all be assured that what you're seeing on TV when you watch the, you know, watch the games is real. Um, And, you know, the reality is that's, that's more of an impression than a reality that's out there. I mean, there's another factor in anti-doping too, is there's, there's a lot of theatrics in, um, in athletes who are caught. So, um, you know, there's a case of of Maria uh, Sharapova and and meldonium um, a few years ago. And that's an example of a drug that, you know, there's really no evidence that it's performance enhancing, um, but it was put on a list because a lot of Eastern European athletes uh, were known to be taking it. Um, you know, there's another case right now, um, Simona Halep in tennis. Um, also, you know, a question of, you know, wh- whether the, the substance that she was uh, found to have taken was performance enhancing. Um, it's on the list, so it's breaking the rules. But at some point, you know, we have to ask the question, like, you know, is there an unfair advantage here? And if people are taking things off label, um, trying to get an advantage, you know, what should the threshold be for, for evidence in order to, you know, put something on the list and be really concerned about it. And I don't think there's a lot of clarity on that either. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some things on the list that are like, we're not sure this actually does anything, but it is on the list. Maybe we got to reevaluate the list. Um, if the, if the prevalence, if we kind of agree that, all right, maybe one and two or something of actual competitive uh, athletes are, using PDs or have used PDs over a given time frame, but we're only catching one to 2% with our current testing protocols. Does that actually, in your opinion, discourage athletes to use, or does it, is it actually almost like, look, they're only catching one to 2% of us. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. Again, this is one where I think if we wanted to, we could have better answers to these sort of questions. We wouldn't have to speculate, but you know, just, just as a matter of mathematics, you know, if one out of 10, one out of 20, one out of 50 athletes um, are the, actually caught, then there is a huge incentive, um, particularly if it's well known that, you know, people who are um, gaining success from breaking the rules um, aren't getting caught. So, so this is, I think, again, I think this is one reason why we choose as a community to remain ignorant of these issues. Um, because if we knew the true prevalence and we knew the true incentives, um, you know, it's, you know, you're looking behind the curtain a little bit at, at you know, what's really going on. So, um, I, you know, I had a, a student in one of my classes in my sports governance class. I don't know. It's, it's been a while ago now. Um, and I had a panel on, on anti-doping. Um, and, you know, his question was, um, and as an NCAA division one, uh, he was in, in cross country. Um, he said, you know, if, if there's a lot of people doping, and they're getting away with it. Why shouldn't I dope? And, and it was a really hard question for the panel. You know, it's ethically, it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. Um, of course, all those answers, but, but, you know, the incentives are out there and I think athletes know them and, you know, what, what the truth is and how many athletes are doping, taking what substances, you know, we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to convince somebody, particularly if they're in a position to have a lot of gain, like, oh, multi-million dollar contract or endorsements or whatever, if you perform up to this level. And you may yeah. need some help to get to that level. I had um, Lance Armstrong came to my class. Um, it was one of his first public appearances after the Oprah interview, um, and and told the story. You know, and I I interviewed him on in front of the class, and you know, asked him how did, how did all this start. Um, and you know, he told the story. This is the 1990s. He's fresh out of Plano, Texas. Um, his his team, um, I don't know if it was Motorola or whatever at that time. Um, he said they were getting their asses kicked. Um, and, you know, they, they realized that the Europeans, a lot of them were, uh, almost all of them were, were doping. And he said, we face a choice. Either we join them or we go home because we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be competitive. And, you know, I think for, for some elite athletes, um, if, if the difference between 
being in the competition versus going home is breaking the rules. Um, I think all of us can understand those incentives, um, even if, though it's, you know, ethically and, and morally, um, you know, the wrong thing to do, but we can understand the incentives and why people choose to go that route. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the moral, like, moral hangup is? Like, wh- where does that come from in society against what we would consider PED use? Because in other sports, particularly those that have, like, technical aspects to it, I think about motor- motorsports like Formula One. I think even in, like, track and field, you talk about shoes and tr- the tracks yeah. themselves. And you're like, look, the technological advancements have made people faster, made things safer, whatever. And we applaud that. We champion those sort of innovations, even if they're not bound by any particular rule. Sometimes – especially in formula one, the rules comes after the fact They're like, mm, actually that's, that's an un- unfair advantage, but we have these moral issues with PED use. Is that something you think has been conditioned over time or like, how, how do you view that? Yeah. If you take a look um, at the history of doping and, and there's, you know, there's a lot to say here and you, you made some very good points about, you know, technological advances. We can talk about those also. Um, but really when, when WADA was created, um, it was created following um, you know, the Ben Johnson Canadian sprinter, um, was that 1988, scandal, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the 1990s, there was a, you know, a call for harmonizing, um, you know, global anti-doping rules, um, for purposes of elite sport. And it was interesting because the recreational drugs got put in there also. Um, and this was, you know, not, not very long after the Ronald Reagan era of just say no to drugs and a very moralistic, particularly from the United States approach and so a drug like marijuana, um, which many athletes get caught um, taking um, in the Olympic movement, has, has no known uh, expectation to be performance enhancing. And most people would probably understand it probably does the opposite. Um, but marijuana was put in there as, as part of this message that I think politicians, and again, particularly United States politicians, were trying to send young people that, you know, no, no. You know, taking drugs is bad, everyone. And so it was more of a, a societal message about being uh, clean. Uh, there's a case of a Canadian snowboarder um, who got caught for marijuana around that time. I forgot his name. Um, but, you know, the concern was, hey, well, everybody's going to think he's cool, right? <laughs> Smoking dope and, and, you know, riding the board. And so um, I do think that that the drug use has been treated differently than say, I mean, there are, are many cases of athletes who um, blow out their knees and they get it surgically repaired and it's much better and stronger than it was based on what they were born with. Um, so that's, yeah, that's per- performance enhancing. Um, training is performance enhancing. So, so, you know, the idea that there's things we do to ourselves to improve performance, you know, that's what sport's all about. Um, but there is this very moralistic overlay um, on drugs. There is, I think, in Australia, a new competition. I forgot exactly what it's called, but it's like the Anything Goes competition where, where they're going to uh, have athletes just, you know, you can take whatever you want and perform. And, you know, bodybuilding has done that for, for years where they have, uh, you know, two different competitions. One's supposed to be clean and one's Anything Goes. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And there, you know, like the NFL in, in the U S the NFL governs itself and it has much, uh, looser, um, less strict rules for, for taking performance enhancing drugs than say the Olympic movement does. Um, and so, um, you know, we value drug taking in different settings very differently across sport. Yeah. It seems, I don't know, kind of arbitrary where we draw the line between this is okay. And then this is not. And it seems like the burden of proof to like establish that boundary. Well, that's right where you fit in that sort of gray zone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the criticisms of the, the Olympic movement is that the athletes um, don't, aren't the ones who set that, those limits um, and, and govern themselves. Um, it's something that administrators do, do to athletes. And that's very different than um, the professional sports where they're collectively bargained and, and athletes have a voice in their, you know, this is their workplace. Um, and so they have a voice in, in setting up the rules. Uh, so, you know, again, it, it, it gets all down to politics and decision-making and regulation. Um, and it's uh, just the result of the, the, the choices that we choose to impose uh, on sport. Right. Yeah. We need like an athlete's union for each sport or something to get them right, to like right. participate. Right. One thing, and, and, and this is, I haven't heard much discussion about this particular uh, kind of slant at it, but with all this sort of smoke and mirrors around testing and, and, and sanctioning and this, that, and the other, and, and then again, the chemists and the doctors trying to stay one step ahead, 
but again, under this sort of cloak of secrecy, are there like harms with the current protocol, like the current sanctioning uh, and testing protocols, wherein people have to do, they have to take these PEDs from a, you know, underground lab under the cloak of secrecy with perhaps, you know, inappropriate monitoring, you know, if you were trying to really reduce the risk of harm to the athletes, you know, like in your estimation, is there some real harm being done here to the athletes? Yeah, I think, I mean, one, one circumstance I've written a lot about is the, this idea of burden of proof that, you know, once, and again, this is under WADA and the Olympic sports, but once an athlete um, is determined to have um, a positive test, um, then the, the burden of proof shifts from, you know, WADA or the sports organization to the athlete to prove themselves innocent. And it turns out that sports organizations have a lot more resources, money, access to scientists, access to lawyers than do individual athletes. And, and mistakes happen. I mean, in every, every realm of our lives, mistakes happen. And in anti-doping, when mistakes happen, it's very penal to athletes. Um, and so I've written, you know, about a number of cases where athletes, um, have been wrongly accused. Um, and you know, the evidence strongly suggests that, but the, because of the way that anti-doping is set up and it's biased against the athlete, um, you can, you can see careers end, um, because of that. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the calculus, and this is what the anti-doping community will say is with that, well, you know, every once in a while, an innocent athlete will, will have to be, um, you know, sacrificed so that we can ensure we're catching as many as possible of the, of the guilty ones. Um, and so, you know, given that we know how many guilty athletes get away with doping, you know, it's a questionable calculus in my mind because of the, you know, how penal the consequences are. Yeah. Yeah. You could, uh, and there's no sort of restitution afterwards, like, Hey, sorry, bro. Uh, yeah. Ended your career, limit yeah. <laughs> your whole livelihood now down the yeah, tank. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, and so it's, it's just enormously high stakes for athletes to get caught up in that system. Um, if they're innocent. Yeah, I had the I had this thought like again if if we accept that a lot of athletes are using and are going to use almost regardless of the current policies that are in, in place and they subsequently take very high doses or very uh we'll just say unregulated agents that we don't have adequate knowledge about their pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics and ultimately leading themselves down a trajectory of worse health or or health problems long term. You're effectively Again, the current protocols are like almost endorsing that. And then 20 years later, so-and-so has, you know, sudden cardiac arrest or dies early or whatever. That taints the sport maybe worse than like, yeah, we know that people are using some stuff and we're allowing that under the context of this, these rules. I don't know. Do you, any, any thoughts on, on, on that? This sort of, again, what's happening behind closed doors uh, just due to these the yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of big, important ethical questions here. I mean, we saw, you know, with East German athletes in the 1970s, 1980s, um, you know, a lot of women in particular had um, lasting long term health effects of, of doping. Um, there's the case right now that's underway. Uh, Kamala Valieva, um, the, the, the young ice skater. Um, who I think she was 16 at the time of the Olympics when she was found to have been, um, I guess the right way to say it is doped because the allegation is that the, um, the her Russian um, coaches had had you know put her on on substances and she wasn't aware of. Um, and even if she was aware of it, she was 16; she was a minor. And so you know there there are these um, impacts that can occur to people who are you know not making decisions for themselves. Um, there's a, you know, the whole Russian doping program where many athletes were doping. They didn't, some knew it, some didn't know it. Um, and so, you know, it gets to, you know, you know, back to the basics of, I guess, you know, practicing medicine, you know, first do no harm. And so, you know, I, I don't know that there's many, um, particularly at the Olympic level, um, circumstances where there's not a medical professional involved. I mean, I'm sure there's people doing off-label stuff and taking supplements, but in a lot of cases, we are aware that, you know, there are coaches and medical doctors that are actively participating in using athletes as guinea pigs um, because they don't know. So, so yeah, the, there's a huge array of ethical issues here. Um, but, you know, we know that sport is a very fertile ground for, you know, violating societal norms and, and ethical values, whether you're, you're cheating in baseball or, 
you know, taking drugs and sprinting. So it's, it's, and, and, you know, this is why sport is so fascinating because it's just like everywhere else in, in, in our lives, you know, with all those complications. Yeah. All right. So here's the, maybe, I don't know what the entire revenue of sports worldwide is offhand, but if world athletics and WADA came to you and they said, you know, Mr. Pelkey, what should we do? You got a, you know, a two minute elevator pitch on like, here's what I think we should do policy wise based on, on your sort of research. Yeah. I mean, this is what I wrote in my book, The Edge, about um, my recommendation. I mean, the first thing to do would be to shrink the list, um, to uh, take take the, um, the the prohibited list and shrink it down to those substances that we know um, definitively confer performance advantage. And, you know, stimulants, steroids, anabolics, um, EPO. Um, you know, blood doping. I mean, there's, there, there are some things that I think would inevitably rise to the top, um, you know, to, to get on the, the prohibited list, um, a substance has to meet two out of three criteria, um, has to be performance enhancing, has to, um, be a risk to the health of the athlete. And it's in, it had the, the third criteria is that it violates this, what's called the spirit of sport. And, you know, I would say, all right, let's get rid of that spirit of sport thing, because that's not an objective measurable thing. I mean, performance enhancing, we can measure. If it affects, uh, you know, health risks, we can measure. And, you know, the next thing is let's make the list evidence-based, not feelings-based. Um, and so, you know, I do think they could up the scientific rigor of what they do. Um, it would require a wholesale change in how we think about doping. It's not about clean versus dirty. It's about, we have some rules and we're putting them in place. Um, you know, to make competition as fair as possible. And I guess the last thing I'd recommend is bring athletes into the community to help make these decisions. Um, you know, they're the ones, this, it's their workplace that we're talking about. Everybody enjoys it. You know, we watch it on TV, but it's their workplace. And so they should have a, a big voice. Yeah, I would, I would love to see the public's reaction to some sort of athlete agreement like, okay, we're going to agree that these agents, nobody's going to use. Uh, but these other things that were previously on the banned list, you know, there'd be some expose and people, I don't know what would happen. I don't know. I, I, I do think people are mostly, mostly watch sports for the entertainment value. And so maybe no one cares. And like, we just move on in the news cycle, but I don't know. I'd be curious to see people's response. You know, I think it's probably a little bit like, uh, college, college athletes and, you know, football players in particular getting compensated. Um, for a long time, people said, well, it's going to ruin the sport. You know, it's going to change the, the entire nature of sport. And, and now that we have NIL in college sports and, you know, we got college football players who are millionaires, um, turns out college football is more popular than ever. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I, I don't think, you know, that, uh, the, the, the viewing public is going to care too much about the fine details of anti-doping rules. They don't care right now. So Yeah. People might just be more aware of, okay, this is what it legitimately takes yeah. to get to that level. And so with the known maybe risks, benefits, whatever, people can make a more educated decision rather right. than ending up dedicating their life's work to something that was, eh, I didn't really want to take this step. So. Right, right. Okay. Well, look, if you're confirming my biases, I knew I liked you. Like <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Uh, so that's that's a little piece on, on, on doping in sport. I did want to talk to you about the Caster Semenya case. And, I mean, this thing is, has been blowing up recently. But just to give our listeners a sort of review of what happened. Uh, Caster, she's a South African middle distance runner uh, with XY DSD, which stands for Disorders of Sexual Development. It means she has XY chromosomes, but does not express the typical, typically male characteristics completely. And effectively, since 2009, she's gone back and forth with World Athletics, again, formerly IAAF, about whether or not she can compete. And they've made various rules about testosterone levels and um, all sorts of different things. But can you summarize what's happened to her over the last decade or so? Because I know you've been following this for a long time. It's just... Yeah. And, you know, I should, you know, it's important for me to disclose I was an expert witness for her in her court case uh, before the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, so, you know, I definitely have my views on this topic. But, you know, you summarized it very well. Um, she has, um, you know, let's just say unique biology. Um, and she's also an exceptional athlete. And, you know, for me, the most important aspect of this case is, you know, when she was born, she was identified as a female. She was raised as a female. She's always maintained her her identity as a female. There's a continuity there over time. Um, but IAAF, um, it's starting in 2009, um, made this argument that she, her biology conferred unfair advantages over other women. Um, they did not. So this is this is very different than the transgender athlete issue, because IAAF um, before the court of arbitration for sport did not claim you know she's a man or she's male. Um, what they said is she's a female with unfair advantages, um, and so that was the question there. And it you know it it opens up a whole lot of discussion points that you know we could ask like what what is an unfair advantage that you know, one woman has over another woman or that one man has over another man. Um, you know, it's clear that Usain Bolt had some advantages over other athletes. Um, were they unfair? I mean, if you're running against him, you might say, yeah, he's, he's unfair. Um, so, it, you know, it gets back to this idea of what's natural. What are, what are the categories we have? Um, you know, is sport supposed to be for uh, females of only a certain, you know, biology, biological um, makeup? Um, and so you know, that's what everything kind of focused on. Um, you know, the fact that Castor um, has never been shy, you know, she struts around, she flexes her muscles. Um, she was a badass when she was um, running in, you know, the Olympics and everybody saw her. Enormously popular athlete in South Africa. Um, so she has um, won and lost and won a number of court cases. Um, and most recently, this was um, in the summer of, just before, I think in spring of 2023, um, she won a case before the European Court of Human Rights, um, which um, came down with the judgment that her rights had been violated by World Athletics. Um, World Athletics is not a party to the European Court of Human Rights. You know, countries are. Um, and so you know, they say they're going to appeal it, but it doesn't have any implication for her eligibility. And you know, Castor is now in her 30s. And probably, you know, past her prime. So even if she was eligible, you're not going to see her in elite competition. Um, but it's important because there are other women out there um, who have similar biological makeups who are um, in, and it's interesting, it's all in, in track and field, um, who are currently prohibited from, from competing. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say on, on that is, you know, after IAAF had banned these particular women from competition, we didn't see any of the other sports rushing to do the exact same thing. And you know, I mean, the reality is that women with unique biology exist um, in every sport. Um, and it was only deemed to be a problem um, in athletics or track and field, which I found to be a pretty interesting development because it's not deemed to be a problem in, in, in swimming or you know, rugby or you know, anything else. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. It is interesting. I agree, it's especially because this XY 
disorder of sexual development does exist in the population. It does seem to be overrepresented in sport. Same thing with like polycystic ovarian syndrome in, windrome, in women and a few other conditions. We just see more athletic women with these traits, whether that's the sport selecting for those women or those women selecting the sport, don't know. But this, yeah, you're right. This particular rule was only in track and field. And some people kind of refer to it as the caster rule because it's like, okay, it's only for the 400 meter, the 800 meter, and the 1500 meter for the events that she might run. And then it was like she was the only one who got sanctioned at a high level. Uh, you know, it's and you're right. Unfortunately, it did kind of affect her career because she was like, oh, maybe I could run the 200. But it turns out she wasn't a very good 200 meter, you know, sprinter. Yeah, right. oh, oh, I'll run the 5K. And it turns out not quite good enough. And again, towards the backside of her career. So it really did affect her personally um i don't know what do you think about that current the current policy like does the you know is this going to be overturned do you feel like in in track and field and and and, and further how do they even get to testing caster herself i know her like 800 meter time improved by a number of seconds like in a fairly short order and so they were like hmm we should probably test her. But also I've heard rumors that they looked at, they looked at her physical appearance and like, you don't look like a prototypical woman. And so therefore we're going to examine you closer. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that has happened over that. I mean, part of the issue um, was the, how, you know, people judged how she looked um, early when her career, you know, she, she burst on the international scene when she was 19, she was already known um, in South Africa and, there were questions, let's say, raised um, probably unethically by the IAAF at the time, um, and they said some things in public that, you know, with hindsight, are really cringy. Um, and as you said, you know, IAAF started out by wanting to regulate testosterone levels, and um, they IAAF lost a court of arbitration for sport case. Um, it wasn't with Castor; it was with another a- athlete, uh, Duti Chand, um, from India, and. The argument that that um, that IWF tried to make was that well, w- w- women with high testosterone have an unfair advantage, but they didn't have the evidence to back that up. Um, and so, CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, um, told them to you know go away and see if you can find the evidence. And um, IWF published a paper. Um, and long story short, I, uh, Ross Tucker, and Eric Boya, uh, uh, two colleagues. Um, we got a hold of the data and we looked at it and it was chock full of errors and it was flawed and um, we published it, you know, it showed up in the New York Times. And, um, you know, long story short, IAAF abandoned that argument, Um, but they still put in place these rules and you're right to characterize them as, you know, caster Semenya focus that that in distances between 400 meters and one mile, women women with high testosterone are banned from from running um they've gotten rid of that since um you know more recently and they they made it more of a chromosome role so if you have xy chromosomes and you're a woman um you're not allowed to to participate so so i who knows what's going to happen i'm sure there will be more court cases going forward um the the evidence and science is um not at least to date on the side of world athletics um, it's more an impression that um, it's improper to have women with XY chromosomes run against women with XX chromosomes. Um, but, you know, Castor Semenya's times were not world record times. Um, she was dominant for a period, but we see this in many sports. Um, you know, I saw statistics that, you know, I think it's Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have won, you know, something like, you know, 47 out of the last 50 grand slams or something like that. I don't know exactly the number, but, but long running dominance by individual athletes is not by itself a basis for banning them from the sport. It's kind of contrary to sport. So, so what society, you know, will accept from these sport organizations as far as singling out individuals and banning them um, is to be still judged, but you know, you're right. Caster's career um, was basically ended by these rules. Yeah. And, and it is to be, again, this kind of reductionism to just chromosomes. Oh, you're 46XY. And then they even try to re- reduce it further, just testosterone. And it's like, what about height? What about leg length? What about hips? Or, you know, all these sort of things that we actually do have maybe even better evidence on like, this actually predicts running performance or or something like that. Like if, the, if everything was completely e- equal across the board, it'd be like NASCAR, like, like, 
stock car racing. You're like, okay. And it's like, no one would win. Everyone would have crossed the line at exactly the same time. Like there are unique advantages and disadvantages. And that kind of creates this uncertainty in sport that, which is why we watch, uh, like who's going to win. And, uh, I don't know, man, part of me can't also can't help but think like, do you only see this regulation within women's sport in a way? And like in men's sport, we kind of celebrate, look, if you're dominant, hats off, great job. Now it's like, with women, eh, something's wrong here. Let's figure out what's wrong with you so we can figure it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it is interesting because they're, they're, you know, part of this debate is not, is not, um, resolvable through evidence and science. So, so the, the existence of 46 XY women, um, is something that, uh, medical science has, has documented for, you know, many decades. Um, they exist, they're real, they're women. Um, but there are some people, including some very authoritative people, who will say that the the if you are forty six x y you are a male, regardless of you know what your body looks like, regardless of um, you know what you were identified as as birth at birth. Um, and again, this is, has nothing to do with the transgender issue, which is also an important one, but it's a separate one. Um, and so there is a fundamental battle over you know, what it means to be a woman in society. And it turns out, you know, it's a bunch of men making those arguments and fighting those things. Um, for me, it, you know, the, the Castor Semenya case is one where the, there is no reason for sports organization, for world athletics to, to, to get into her business. Um, if an individual is born a woman, raised, you know, born female, raised as a girl, raised as a woman, entered sport as a woman, had that continuity, hey, guess what? You know, society's done all the hard work for you. You're lucky. Um, she's a woman. She's got a passport. She's a woman. Her driver's license. You know, end of story. Um, there's no need for a sport organization to go in and you know start mucking around and second guessing or raising suspicions or banning individuals. Um, the reality is that there are going to be individuals from time to time who have unique attributes that lend themselves to outsized performance in sport. And, you know, sport is a great sorting device for identifying that those exceptional individuals. So rather than get hung up on the fact that, you know, they're not like you or me or, you know, just the average, the average person, um, they're exceptional in a lot of different ways. Um, there's, there was this Finnish uh, cross-country skier um, a couple generations ago um, who everyone thought was doping. He won everything um, and he had this ruddy red complexion. Um, and it turns out he had, um, his body had some uh, abnormality where he had like a little EPO factory where he produced red blood cells. And, you know, once the world discovered, oh, he wasn't doping, it was natural. You know, they celebrated him. In, in Finland, they have, they have statues uh, honoring his achievements. Um, and again, it was exceptional. It was rare. Was it unfair? Probably. Um, but, you know, that, that those are the breaks. And so I think our... You know, for me, the the Castro Semenya case is is a reflection of, uh, to some degree, of intolerance among sports administrators um, over human diversity. Yeah, yeah, it, it it and also just again like the identification process, like the testing process, because some people would say, look, if if only one percent of the entire world's population is forty six X Y, but they're you know female or, 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 and, or women raises women and, and whatnot, maybe this isn't a big problem, and maybe actually excluding them. You know, hey, that, like you said, them be the breaks that they might say that back to you. Yeah. But that, as far as the spirit of sport, the you know Olympic Charter, and they view sport as like everyone should be able to participate, and you know, it's kind of like I don't know if that's good enough, and I don't know that we should be singling people out just based on their appearance or whatever. If we're going to test everybody, okay, but like I don't know. When when IAAF first put these regulations in the place when they were testosterone rules. Um, in the regulations, they had a little picture, and I published this in, a, in an article, but had a picture that you could hold up, compare, you know, in the, to the woman in the lane next to you or, you know, swimming next to you um, with physical characteristics you could use to identify a woman with high testosterone. And, you know, two of the indicators were, were breast size and shape and, you know, the voice and, and, you know, do we really want athletes and fans and coaches going around, you know, evaluating women and, you know, reporting them. Um, a few years ago, as a result of the, the Semenya case, WADA um, altered the, its, its code um, 
to cover not just anti-doping, but to allow anti-doping tests to be used for these sort of regulations. So it's a very invasive um, process and you get, you know, women who have their personal medical and biological information broadcast to the world. Um, I mean, officially, officially, no one is supposed to know anything about Castor Semenya's biology. Yeah. And the the fact that you and I are here talking about it is, you know, itself a violation of the IAAF, you know, promises of confidentiality in these cases. Um, If you can't, if you can't maintain confidentiality, then you should go back and, you know, take a look at your regulations. So there's a lot of, a lot of issues that are non-sport that get implicated here very quickly. Yeah. In addition to like the whole question of, all right, well, if we are going to regulate gender eligibility for, for various divisions in sport, why are most sports organizations, sports governance bodies not actually coming out with very clear enforceable protocols? And so on the one hand, I don't agree with what the IAAF has done, but they're like kind of one of the only groups that has commented on, okay, well, here are the people that can compete in the women's division, and here are the people that can compete in the men's division. My best example of this is the International Weightlifting Federation. They have this 100-something page technical document that, you know, all the weight classes, all what the barbell has to look like, all the plates, this, that, and the other, and the word female or male is no, zero times. And then the word woman in there is only there in respect to what color socks a female, a woman judge can wear if she's oh, wow. a referee, but yeah. no, like here's who qualifies, here's who's eligible for the particular division, the women's division. And here's how we're going to enforce that or, or verify that. And so you get these kind of weird problems where oh, could I sign up for the women's division? And, you know, that actually was a case, a situation in Canada where a, a, a powerlifter uh, who's a man entered and competed as a woman in this, you know, in the meet and it made this huge spectacle and it's like, can we do better? Like we should have a better policy. What do you yeah. think about like a, a, an equitable and enforceable sort of policy for gender eligibility in sport? Yeah. I mean, obviously um, we do have men's and women's categories across, you know, almost all sports and it's important um, because that's reality. Um, so there needs to be clear policies in place. It's interesting because with the rise of controversy over transgender athletes, um, many organizations have started adopting um, policies that say, well, you have to compete at the elite level in the category that you were born into, that you were identified at birth. You can't change categories. Um, that makes some complications for cases like Castor Semenya because all of a sudden, you know, if IAAF had that role, she would be eligible to compete as a woman. Um, but you know, the question again is not who, who are you? The question is, do you have an unfair advantage and an unfair advantage in women's gymnastics is going to look a lot different than powerlifting or judo or something like that. And, you know, a lot of the Australian sports, um, actually, I think, you know, have this right. They, they evaluate athletes on a case by case basis. And, um, you know, if, if you're transgender, you have to be uh, evaluated and they, you know, they measure your sprinting speed and your jumping speed and your strength. Um, I wrote a paper and I, I, I introduced a thought experiment. I called it the two Chris's. Um, and let's say you're playing rugby and you have two Chris's, um, and they both have the same bench press. They both have the same vertical leap. They both have the same, you know, 40 yard dash time. Um, but one is X, X and one is X, Y. Um, you know, what's the basis for excluding one of those Chris's? Um, it's not an unfair advantage. So, you know, in, in sport, as in other parts of life, you can't simply discriminate against someone based on who they are. So, so for gender regulation and categorization in sport, um, it's really important that sports organizations identify in the context of their disciplines and their sport, you know, what is an unfair advantage? Um, we do this with, you know, athletes who run on the cheetah blades. Um, so we can do this in the case of, of gender. And once you identify quantitatively, scientifically what an unfair advantage is, then we go out and measure it. And, um, and then you know, there's an open question for many sports. If, if trans athletes, if trans women um, take uh, testosterone suppression, um, you know, and, you know, does that mitigate to some degree that unfair advantage? Um, and in some cases, the answer will be yes. and others, it'll be no. Um, and it's messy and people like things clean and easy and simple and black and white. But, you know, for me, the reality is it's, it's going to be sport by sport. 
and individual by individual. And some some trans athletes, some trans women will be judged. Yeah, you're you're eligible because you don't have an unfair advantage. And others, and we you know we see this in Australia. A basketball player was just recently told she couldn't participate um, because she had an unfair advantage. Um, and other athletes will you know be prohibited. And it's just going to be messy like that. We see the same thing with athletes who run on uh, the prostheses. Uh, Blake Leeper is a sprinter um, from Los Angeles who wanted to run in Tokyo. Um, running on the cheetah blades and he was evaluated went to the court of arbitration for sport and they said nope your 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 legs give you an unfair advantage um and you know they're dueling scientists and all that um but other athletes you know oscar oscar pistorius was able to run so so it's 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 one of those things where the details matter we're talking about people uh and so you can't just ban a whole class of people from participating yeah That's well i yeah, if, look, if you guys don't take anything else away from this podcast, but that that line right there, you can't just ban a whole group of people from sport. That That's it. I, I think we're in agreement there. But yeah, it's going to be messy in particular because there's this sort of like sport focused uh, or, or the priority of sport being focused on as, let's make sure there's no unfair advantage or no un, you know excessively unfair advantage. But then there's this sort of societal intersection where it's like, we want everybody to be able to participate, uh, you know, benefit from participation. And it's like if we exclude folks or they can't um, participate in the sport as as they identify as they are, that's harmful to them on some level. Or if they have to out themselves in order to like sort of register, perhaps that's yeah. a barrier that is limiting participation. But it is messy. And I don't know what to do about it. So I was hoping that you were just going to have a clear cut answer. We yeah, could just yeah. get to the bottom it's, of this. You know, this is going to be adjudicated in courts and, you know, before the Court of Arbitration for Sport in coming years. Um, and, you know, it'll be with us for a long time. You know, some people have proposed, well, let's just have a third category for, for trans athletes. Um, you know, and that's fine for those athletes who may want to do that, but it doesn't get rid of the problem for, you know, an athlete says, well, I'm a woman. Here's my passport. Here's my driver's license. I've been a woman for years. I want to compete in my, in my gender category. Um, you know, this is where the laws of society come up against the, the norms of sport. And, you know, some people say, well, sport is a special area. We can carve out special rules where discrimination is allowed. Um, it doesn't work that way. So, so you know, it, it's, it'll be messy for a, a while to come. But, you know, my thinking is we've seen integration of different populations, you know, starting with women in, you know, 100 years ago into sport. Um, you know, then we had segregation in sport and so on. Um, it, it's, you know, the, the long arc of history is towards in regulated inclusion. And so I think that'll be the case here as well. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, so guys, if you're listening at home, you guys obviously now are aware why I like Mr. Pelkey's work so much. Like this is just, to me, like first pass through most of his stuff, it was absolutely eye-opening. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, but just to give uh, listeners sort of an idea of what you're doing now, do you, are you working on any books? Are you writing stuff? Like what's what's going on? Uh, yeah, there? you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back doing a lot of environmental climate energy policy stuff and the the, the topics that I'm focused most on in the sports governance, you know, I kind of left doping behind because, uh, didn't, you know, honestly, it didn't seem like anybody cared. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, notably, you know, the regulators and so on. It was not, you know, making arguments like we should know the prevalence of doping, you know, didn't get me on many Christmas card lists. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm working on um, universities and college sports in the U.S. You know, we're in a profound set of changes and you were, you know, only at the start of it with athlete compensation, there's, you know, realignment in college football. And, um, so that's really important. And I'm still deeply involved in the, in the gender regulation, um, issues. I'm still writing on, on those. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do a sequel to my book, the edge. Um, I got no, no, no problems with plenty of material, um, yeah. to, to work on. Um, but th that'd be a longer term aspiration. Are you actively publishing stuff now, like on a uh, some sort of website, or is it mostly through journals and, and, and stuff like that? I just, if people wanted to find more of your work, if people want to find my stuff, including my sports governance stuff, they can go to uh, Substack, and um, it's called the Honest Broker, and Roger Pelkey. Just Google P I E L K E and the Honest Broker, and you'll find it. Awesome. Yeah, we will uh, be linking to his books and to Substack in the show notes. But uh, really wanted to appreciate, uh, wanted to thank you for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great, great set of topics. And thanks for letting me get into all the complexities. All right, that's a wrap on episode 243. Shout out to Roger Pelkey Jr. for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. 
uh, links to everything we discussed in the show in the show notes below. Make sure to check out our sponsors, Pioneer Belts. Again, they have their annual Christmas sale going on this weekend, October 6th through 8th, 15% off the entire store. No code needed. Just head over to generalleathercraft.com. Tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Really appreciate it. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.